Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. You're listening to the Red Sea Podcast, part of the Over the Monster Network. Red Sox fans have longed to hear it. The Boston Red Sox are world champions. Hosted by Jake Devereaux. It's gone. It's in the bullpen. This game is tied. This game is tied. David Ortiz. David Ortiz. David Ortiz. And featuring Keaton DeRocher. It's a grand slam. I'm telling you. Welcome back to the Red Seat Podcast. This is your host, Jake Devereaux, and today I am joined by Keaton DeRocher of Over the Monster and the Dynasty Guru for episode 248 of the show. Keaton, welcome back. How are you doing, man? Doing good, man. Just uh, chilling in the AC in my hotel room because it's 105 outside. So just keep it cool. Yeah, Keaton is joining us from the Dallas-Fort Worth area. So, um, you know, he... He probably flew into a gigantic airport and is now roasting alive. Uh, so I'm glad you have some AC, uh, my friend. Oh, I feel so good. Yeah. All right. So today on this show, we are going to be talking about, uh, you know, the, the, the stretch of games that the Red Sox are playing right now um, against the Rays. We're going to be hitting on uh, the the big story today, which is really the starting pitching and all that's going on with that with the Red Sox. Uh, some bad news, some good news. We'll hit on the bullpen a little bit. We'll talk a little bit about J.D. Martinez. Um, and then we'll get to some listener questions. So we've got a nice full day. Um, let's get started, though, with a, a tiny recap here of what's been going on with the Red Sox. Um, since we last spoke, Keaton, they did play uh, three games at Wrigley Field. Um, and, uh, it didn't go so hot. We were talking about sweeping the Cubs and, uh, almost got swept by the Cubs instead. Um, the Red Sox did salvage a game from that series. Uh, overall, not so hot though. Uh, what do you think went wrong in the, in the Cubs series? Yeah, I think it was just a classic playing down to the competition deal, especially in game one. 
they immediately jumped out to a lead. I mean, the first pitch, right? Duran, Duran hit a home run. First pitch, they tacked on a few more uh, in the next inning. Uh, and then they got real complacent, let the Cubs come all the way back, uh, and then just kind of tried to cruise from there uh, and got bit in the butt and got, again, some late-inning bullpen shenanigans, bit him in the butt, which has kind of been the case all year. Uh, and then pretty much the same thing happened in Game 2. Uh, and then Game 3, let him hung around, hang around, uh, and then f- finally got a win in extra innings. So, uh, been a long time coming to get one of those. So, yeah, it just felt like one of those where they kind of expected to just kind of go in and cruise, and then when they immediately scored some runs, they thought, you know, it was going to be a walk in the park, and then it's like, oh, yeah, wait, there's a, we're playing a major league team. Maybe we should start trying again. And then by then it was too late. I think it was Patrick Wisdom that smoked that ball off of uh, Matt Strom, too, right, to blow the save. Yeah. Yeah, that thing w- went 450 feet. Um, Joe Castiglione almost had a heart attack when he saw that thing. Um, <laughs> it, it was absolutely obliterated. But, yeah, that was too bad. But I think the biggest news of the Cubs series was Josh Winkowski's quote about um, Wrigley Field being, like, no big deal. He basically... Uh, I have the quote actually right here. Um, he said, "Doot doot doot." This is great, great uh, television, radio, whatever. Uh, he said, "A little underwhelming." Fenway has a presence to it. I really didn't get that here, to be honest. I said to my mom last night, "This place is very stock standard." Uh, and then to that, I said on Twitter. Uh, this was also my take when I went. Sorry to all my Cubs fan friends, but he speaks the truth. It's pretty cookie cutter. And uh, Cubs fans killed me for that. So, Keaton, what's your opinion about uh, Wrigley Field? That's spot on. It's what? Which part? Your take. Spot oh, on. Yes. Awesome. I didn't expect you to be team me with this one. No, it's, uh, I mean, it's small. Like, I mean, the only thing is that's cool about it is the ivy. Like, it doesn't have fun dimensions. I mean, it's kind of neat that it's in the city, which is rare for ballparks now because right. normally they're not. They're, like, in a compound way outside a city, uh, like, with a bunch of other stadiums for whatever city it is. So, like, it's cool that it's within the city, uh, and it's cool that the wall has ivy on it. But other than that, like, there's no fun dimensions. The outfield is just all bleachers. It's not, like, actual seats so it's like that's i guess kind of neat um all the other seats are really small and uncomfortable just like fenway parks i mean at least like we have a weird triangle a giant monster some massive right field um like it's really weird it's a really weird place to play baseball um you walk into wrigley field and it looks just like a high school field except there's grass on the walls yeah and you know that was my take too, and I've only been the one time, so I was pretty open to criticism uh, for my take on this. Um, and a couple of things that people pointed out to me that I didn't notice before were the wells on the field, which give it sort of uh, the ability for odd bounces to happen in the corners. Um, so I guess there's a little bit of angulation going on there, That, but it's nothing like Fenway, exactly what you know, that was my biggest thing too, is you look at the shape of the field and it's like, okay, yep, this could have been built in literally any era because it's pretty stock. So I didn't even notice the wells till somebody pointed that out. 
Um, and then the second thing, though, that I do think is a good point is that Wrigley really doesn't have that many bad seats for an old ballpark. Whereas when you go to Fenway, there are a tremendous amount of bad seats. There are some <laughs> awesome seats, right? Like the monster seats, and there are some incredible views. But um, there are some really, really bad seats. Like thinking about near Pesky's Pole, when you have to turn your head completely to a, a 90 degree angle to see anything that's happening, you know, with these odd angles comes really odd viewing angles when you're stuck behind a pole in the grandstand. Um, that stinks. So in a way, Wrigley is very democratic in the fact that anybody with any ticket can enjoy a pretty decent angle, which is something that a lot of new parks strive for, but is something that I think might be a little bit unique for Wrigley. Yeah, I will. I mean, when you get far down the right and left field lines, it is kind of, I mean, it's a ballpark that was built a hundred years ago, like Fenway Park. So when you get far enough down the lines, it is, um, the seats are just facing the outfield. Like in Fenway, they're not facing home plate like they should be. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's not like because the dimensions aren't like Fenway's like dramatic dimensions. It's not nearly as bad. Yeah. Um, and the bleacher seats, I think, are the best seats at Wrigley Field, um, just because of their proximity to the outfield uh, and the view that you get of the entire field. Um, which uh, also means they're not all that cheap, which is a bummer. Mm. When I moved here, they were really cheap, uh, but the team was also really bad. So, <laughs> what year did you move to Chicago? 2014. Oh, so you've been there for a, a, a good part of Cubs history. Yeah, I was here for the series. So basically, you're the reason why they won it. Yeah, I mean, so I moved here, and then John Lester, like a month later, was like, "Hey, you know what? I'm gonna go hang out with that guy." So I brought Lester here. Nice. Okay. Pretty much. Well, Cubs fans should be paying your beer tab anytime you're in Wrigleyville. Your yeah. uh, your old style should be subsidized for the rest of your life. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's move on, though, to the Tampa Bay series here. I just want to hit on this because it's a really important series. I think the next game was the most interesting one for me with the Red Sox won 4 to nothing. Uh, Austin Davis started that game with two innings because this was the game that... Um, I believe uh, Rich Hill was supposed to pitch in, so they had to do a bullpen game. Cutter Crawford came in, pitched five and a third innings, uh, gave up no runs, struck out eight, looked really good. And then uh, Alex Cora did some aggressive managing with uh, pitching John Schreiber uh, one and two-thirds innings um, to get the save there. So uh, clearly to me, the, the thing that stood out is that Cora is managing this series a little bit more like a playoff series um, than he typically does. And I think that that's important because we talked about the importance of this stretch uh, in July with all of the high caliber teams in the division that the Red Sox are playing. So getting these wins banked against the Rays and the Yankees and the Blue Jays this month is going to be key to the Red Sox postseason hopes. I was actually kind of glad to see Schreiber go for, uh, an inning in two thirds there because uh, I mean, his stuff was strong enough, and I think right now he's the the strongest arm in the bullpen. Um, Hal concluded, uh, so I I think in these really strong games you just kind of have to ride who you who you have here. But I was really impressed with Carter Crawford 
Uh, five and a third and eight strikeouts, only allowing two hits. Um, I mean, really, the three, Davis for two, Crawford for five and a third, Schreiber for an inning and two-thirds, only to allow two hits to this Rays offense. Um, and, I mean, this Rays offense is never one that is going to, like, power you to death. Um, but they always get hits, and usually timely ones, and they were able to just stifle everything. They kept guys off the bases. They didn't give walks. They didn't allow hits. They didn't really kind of make any mistakes at all. They were just – it was one of the sharper pitching performances, like all nine innings, everyone involved, uh, of the season, I think. And Cutter Crawford's eight strikeouts and five and a third there, sandwiched in the middle, was a huge part of that. Yeah, it was. And, and also, I think the, the nice thing about Schreiber's performance was he only threw 17 pitches to get the job done almost two innings. So he's been just a revelation for this team. He's been one of two trustworthy bullpen arms. And we'll we'll get to that a little bit later. But yeah, that's a, that's a good development for the Red Sox, John Schreiber. Um, all right, let's get to the pitching situation, though, because this is where things have gotten quite wonky here. Uh, so we mentioned that Rich Hill injured his knee, uh, or that he was injured. We didn't say that it was his knee, but it was his knee. Uh, and he could miss up to a month. And, you know, at 42 years old, you can never really bank on things healing uh, in a quick way. So we don't really know what's going on with Rich Hill, whether it'll be back in two weeks, four weeks, six weeks. He's going to be out for some period of time. Uh, Michael Waka is also dealing with a period of what Alex Cora deemed dead arm um so it's just not feeling right he's supposed to make a start friday against the yankees but we'll see if he actually does um, make that start in addition to that nathan evaldi's not back and garrett whitlock has been confirmed um by alex cora to be moving to the bullpen for the remainder of the season uh when he gets back which is probably the right move considering what's going on with the bullpen at this point um so lots of things going on uh, on the injury front. And what this has led to is it's led to a couple things. Uh, Chris Sale is actually uh, making his last rehab assignment start uh, as you're listening to this today uh, on Wednesday with uh, Worcester, AAA Worcester. And uh, if he does well, he's going to rejoin the rotation next week. Uh, so that's one good piece that could come back. What's your confidence level in Sale once he does come back uh, to the rotation, and how worried are you about Michael Walker's period of dead arm that he's going through? Boy, things changed so quickly in a week. Uh, the starting rotation was the one piece of the pie that we weren't really concerned about uh, just seven days ago when we last recorded. Um, things have changed quite significantly since then. Yeah. Um, boy, that is a good question with Sale. Um I mean, it's hard not to feel confident if he's on the mound, just given the body of work. But at the same time, we're going on like, what, 19 innings in two years? Yeah. So it's like, I don't know. If he's if he's on the mound, just, you know, like, given his mentality – I I feel confident that there's going to be a good start. But at the same time now with the injury history and uh, the lack of innings, 
he's racked up over the last two years, like we shouldn't expect a lot out of him because it'd be like it'd be, kind of be unfair to expect him to just be vintage Chris Sale after coming back from all of this. Like Tommy John is is tough to come back uh, from. Normally, it takes guys like. You know, you, it's the 12 months of recovery and then another six months of being on a mound before you start to really feel like yourself again. Um, I didn't really get that because then he had the rib thing and, like, a back thing and something else that really just kind of wrecked it. So is he still, like, is that time frame still fit for him like it ha- like it does for other pitchers? I'm not sure. Um, but then I just keep coming back to it's Chris Sale. Like, how can I not feel confident in a Chris Sale start? So I, I really don't know what to expect. Um, just because he's on the mound, I'm going to feel confident about it. But I guess it's it's kind of like a, I'm going to enjoy it for however long it lasts because I'm not entirely sure how long it's going to last kind of thing. Yeah, I'm, I'm like really optimistic about Chris Sale. So I'm going to let you ease into your old role of being the pessimist, Keaton. Um, Excellent. And it's... And I'm not thinking I'm not thinking that Chris Sale is going to be 2017 Chris Sale ever again. Like that that's probably not happening because, you know, he doesn't have a time machine, but um I really do think that Chris Sale's stuff uh even in a reduced form as long as he's healthy uh will play against the best hitters uh in the world. Um and you know, I've been really encouraged by what we've seen in his three little rehab starts here and I'm really interested to see what he does uh, tonight as you're listening to this in Worcester Um, but he's made three rehab appearances his last one was four innings pitched uh, at double-a Portland uh, against Toronto's triple-a team Uh, he gave up one earned run struck out seven didn't walk anybody and over his three appearances uh, he's been ramping up slowly Um, he's got seven and two-thirds innings pitched 14 strikeouts one walk um that's a good ratio, and that is actually what Chris Sale has always been famous for. Is he actually has the best uh, strikeout to walk ratio of any starter in MLB history, uh, with a minimum I think of fifteen hundred or two thousand innings. I can't remember which one, but he is the all-time leader uh, in that category. So, if Chris Sale can regain that command that he had pre Tommy John surgery. And I think that he can because that's one of the things that typically goes with pitchers. Um, it's sort of a harbinger of of an elbow injury is when command guys tend to lose uh, command of their pitches a little bit and they're not able to place them exactly where they are. I think as long as Chris Sale has that ability, like he said a couple times, it really doesn't matter if the ball is coming out of his hand at 96 or 92. Like, sure he'd rather it come out at 96, but as long as he's placing it where he wants to, I think that he's going to be uh, one of the better pitchers in this staff, probably one of the better pitchers in the American League, uh, if not an ace, albeit probably not prime Chris Sale, but I think he can get pretty damn close to it. See, I, I don't, I feel the same. Like, if Chris Sale is on the mound... I just naturally feel like that's what we should expect. I just wonder if it's a little too much given the time that he's missed. Yeah. I don't know. I think, would you agree that before the Tommy John surgery, Chris Sale was on a Hall of Fame trajectory? 
Yeah. I think so too. And so I think with guys like this, you kind of have to look at them a little bit differently. And he's still just 33 years old. It's not like he's that old for a pitcher. Um, And with his stuff, I I don't know, man. I just think that this guy can come back and do it. So I'm excited about Chris Sale. I think it's going to be massive for this team uh, down the stretch, especially with the way that Nick Pavetta, our guy who's pitching right now, is is going. Um, and if Evaldi can come back, all of a sudden, you have a pretty enviable uh, top three right there in your rotation with those guys. So I'm encouraged. Um, but, you know, that's not the only big news here. I did mention the Michael Walker dead arm thing, Keaton. I know he's been your guy all year. His last start, he didn't really look like himself. He was hit around a little bit more. How worried are you about this? Because one of the big red flags that we talked about with uh, Michael Waka heading into this season, and one of the biggest reasons why I was sort of doubtful of Michael Waka's effectiveness is because, you know, he, he threw 124 innings pitched uh, last year, but the year before that it was 34, the year before that 126. Like he hasn't had high innings totals, uh, and he's already at 70, albeit really high quality innings so far this year. But, you know, it's he's starting to get to that point where, you know, he usually has something that causes him to break down a little bit. Yeah. Um, I'm concerned. This was the first start as I scanned the game log real quick all year where he had more walks and strikeouts. That's not great. Um, it was the second most hits he'd given up, uh, and it was tied for the most walks he'd given up. Um, it was not a great outing, and it was the second most runs he'd allowed. Um, really, everything about it, not great. Um, so then to follow that up with a dead arm really kind of started putting me uh, into like a, oh no, this is going to turn into a thing thing and not just a one start through the order thing. And then that kind of compounded with Hills out for a month. Still don't have Evaldi back. Um, right now we don't have Whitlock back. Um, both of those guys are hopefully returning soon. We are supposed to get sale barring everything going well tomorrow back. But right now we basically only have one starter in currently active in the rotation um, that we started the season with. Uh, and that is a little worrisome. So that was my immediate reaction was he had been going so well that it's kind of like everything's kind of correcting, like correcting back to the, the law of averages, whatever you want to term it. Like things, everybody was kind of pitching above themselves and now things are kind of starting to swing the other way, either with injuries or um, like innings totals, catching up on some guys. It's kind of scary. Yeah. I remember when we did our preseason predictions, one of the things we were talking about was uh, how many innings uh, both Waka and Hill would go. And I think I said, 
110 innings or 120 innings or something like that for um, for Waka, and I said 70 for Rich Hill. And uh, they have both not hit those marks yet. We have a lot of time left, but I'm worried that I'm going to be right about both of those guys, and I really don't want to be. Um, yeah. Because I think we need them to bridge that gap um, between Paxton and Sale coming back and whatever they can give you. And we both talked about how optimistic we are about Sale. I'm less optimistic about Paxton just because we've heard a little bit less from him and because he's not the same caliber of pitcher. But the biggest concern I have with uh, Michael Walker, though, is is the fact that he has been really overperforming what all of the advanced metrics are saying about him. Um, if you go to his StatCast page right now for 2022, his percentile ranks for XWOBA, XERA, XBatting Average, XSlugging, Exit Velocity, all these things are just incredibly low. There's a tremendous amount of blue on his page. But the biggest thing I think that just sums it up here, takes into all, account all of these things that I just mentioned, his ERA is 2.69 right now. His XERA is 4.58, which is one of the biggest gaps in all of baseball for a starting pitcher who's thrown as many innings as he has. So to me, that says that there's some pretty hard regression coming. And uh, the fact that that's coupled with his arm not feeling quite great makes me think, I don't know if we can expect really much at all from Waka uh, going forward. So this one scares the hell out of me, to be honest. I think I'm even more worried about the Waka thing than I am about Rich Hill. Because with Rich Hill, it's like if he's on the mound, he's going to be fine. But he's just never on the mound. But with Waka, like we've seen him be on the mound and be horrible. In past years. So yeah. this like, this is scary. As recently as just like a few months ago. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, that's not great. And that's one of the things where, uh, you know, hot guys stay hot until something, you know, shakes the routine. And this could do that if he has to miss a couple turns to the order and then just kind of can't get right after that. And then you know, things catch up to the expected ERA and FIP and such. We need him to not remember he's Michael Waka. Yeah. Or, counterpoint, <laughs> Brian Bayo is the savior of the season. All right, so there it is. We buried the lead here. Um, and, and I have a big caps on our agenda here. Big news. Top pitching prospect Brian Bayo is making his major league debut and starting on Wednesday. Um, this is awesome because... Yeah. As you've probably noticed, Keaton, I've been a little overexcited about Bayo to the fact that even though this is not a prospect podcast, I've been sneaking in Brian Bayo updates to the end of our agendas <laughs> every like week for the last uh, like five podcasts or whatever. Um, so it's real. It's here. Uh, we talked about him having it as a goal that he wanted to make the major leagues. He's finally going to do that. Uh, and he's been great, like tremendous. Um since he got up to AAA, I mean, here's just his strikeout totals since he's been up there. Uh, 10 strikeouts, 10 strikeouts, 6, 8, 8, 8, 7, 7, 8. Um, and he's inducing like over 60% ground balls uh, in the time he's been up there. He's just been so, so good this year. Um, two fastballs that he throws, a four-seamer and a two-seamer. The two-seam is just this... Very heavy pitch that induces a ton of ground balls. He's got great command. He works very quickly. 
He's got a great slider. The changeup is probably his best pitch. Um, just a lot of swing and miss with those two pitches. Um, he's the real deal. He's the best pitching prospect the Red Sox have developed since probably Clay Buckholtz. Maybe you could even say uh, since John Lester. Um, this is this is really exciting. I am so pumped. What are you expecting from him once he does come up here on Wednesday? I am, you, yeah. I'm more excited about Brian Bayo uh, than I was about Buckholtz or Lester. Uh, but that has that's more to do with the fact that I didn't follow prospects in 2007, right? 2008, or what? Lester with 2005. <laughs> so, um, I was. Yeah, just, you were in high school, right? I was in high school. Yeah, wasn't yeah. quite playing dynasty leagues <laughs> yet. Um, but yeah, so I'm significantly more excited about Bayo. But yeah, it's. There have been so many guys that the Red Sox have failed with that, like, I think it kind of amps this up. Like, they have had guys who were uber-talented and just never were able to make it, either just due to the normal prospect bust rate or the Red Sox inability to develop pitchers, which has kind of been more the trend. Uh, Way more successful with hitters than pitchers. Uh, So when a guy breaks through that, it tends to be like, oh, this guy's good, good. So, yeah, I'm super pumped. And you and I, I mean, on our last podcast, I think we talked about, like, ways that he might break into the majors, and we were still looking, like, two months down the road. Yeah. And then the rotation just got wiped out. <laughs> and I was even, I was kind of hesitant, like, are they going to do it this early? Right. There's no way they're going to do it this early, right? No, nah, they wouldn't do that. I'm pumped because, I mean, they have – the Red Sox have shown to themselves to be aggressive with their top prospects, but it's usually never with pitching prospects. It's usually always with hitting prospects. Like, well, they don't have pitching prospects usually. <laughs> well, yeah, I know. <laughs> but, um, like, Bogarts, Devers, Moncada, Benintendi, yep. like all of those guys barely spent – I mean, combined maybe less than 300 games in AA and AAA combined before they made their major league debuts. Yeah. Um, so they're ultra aggressive with their top prospects. So I was like, I mean, it's not really out of character for the Red Sox to to be this aggressive, especially when there's a need for it. It's not like they're forcing him into the rotation. Um, right. There's there's a need for it, and it certainly seems like he's ready for it. So it's kind of like it's all the stars align. And then now with the news that Hill might be out an extended period of time, um, You've got multiple guys out of the rotation, even with Sale coming back, Whitlock going to the pen. Mm-hmm. Like, there's a path here for multiple starts for Bale. So I'm, I'm hoping, really hoping that's what we'll see. It's not just a one and done. Uh, even if it's like a, a mediocre start, I'd really still want to see him get more than one. Yeah, and I kind of think he will. And and one of the things that makes this. Um, a little bit less aggressive than it actually feels because, like, it does feel aggressive, especially for Heim Bloom and how he's operated uh, so far since he's been here. I think it shows a couple different things. It shows the belief in the prospect, first and foremost, but it also shows a recognition from the Red Sox front office and Heim Bloom as to where this team is in, um, in this race right now and who they're playing and playing the Rays and the Yankees and all these teams this month, like, 
they're feeling the urgency. They clearly are. But also, on the flip side of things, Brian Bayo's made uh, he's he's thrown um, eight starts, fifty one and a third innings at AAA to the tune of a two point eight one ERA. So the fifty plus inning sample size at AAA for a twenty three year old is not small especially to dominate the way that he's had. I mean, he's thrown 72 strikeouts, just 21 walks, hasn't allowed very many earned runs during that time period. So he's proven to me that he's he's very much ready for that next step. And there's that other theory, and you know, we've talked prospects with each other uh, a ton over the years, especially on our fantasy podcasts together. But, you know, there's that theory of why waste the bullets at, triple a if a guy's clearly ready right now and brian bayo seems to have nothing left to prove at triple a to me so i think this is not only um a good move by the team but i think it's the right move for the team at this time and i think it's the right move for brian bayo yeah i would agree 100 percent. you were hoping too. like i think one of the ways that we figured it would happen would be um in a reliever role later in the season because that's a pretty common way guys make their debut to get some uh, view of major league at-bats. You were really hoping that was not going to be the case and he would just stay strictly starter through and through. So this plays right into how you were kind of hoping these things would happen this year. Yeah, exactly. And I, and I do think that eventually, um, well, first of all, I'll say I'm, I'm with you, Keaton. I think that he is going to get more than just this one start. I think he's going to be up here in the rotation for a little while. Um, and I think that that's a good thing. I think he should probably get the remainder of the starts that Bayo is going to get this year uh, during this stretch with the team now. But then after that, Keaton, the thing that we talked about before that could happen is once he gets to that place where he was last year with his innings, maybe they let him go 20 more innings past that as a starter. Then they can put him right in the bullpen. And then all of a sudden your bullpen has Tanner Houck, John Schreiber, uh, Garrett Whitlock, and an electric arm in Brian Bayo to kind of finish up the innings that he has there for the remainder of the year. So I think that this is overall just a tremendously good situation for the team because if he can get you through this stretch and then be a key bullpen arm for the rest of the season, that's that's perfect. That sounds great to me. Music to my ears. <laughs> Feed <Yeah>. me. <laughs> so let's let's uh, spitball this a little bit here. So we've got um, the guys we talked about uh, in the rotation that are, are hurt, who are coming back at some point. So at some point, we could have a rotation of Chris Sale, Nick Pavetta, Nathan Eovaldi, then who? Who finishes that out? By the end of the year, as we are heading into the playoffs, who finishes out that that uh, that starting rotation? Get those three. Um, I think Waka. And well, see, I like your move of moving Bayo to the pen for the end of the year slash playoff run. Mm-hmm. 
So if we're talking very end of the year, I'll say Waka would be your four, uh, and then a a trade addition. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. Or do I have to use people on the roster? <laughs> no, no, that's totally fine. That makes okay. that makes a lot of sense. Um, I think it'll be Sale, uh, Ivaldi, Pavetta. Uh, followed by James Paxton. I do think he will be back at some point. And I actually think it's going to be Rich Hill for that fifth spot, spot I should say. Um, just because Rich Hill's stuff, we've talked about this before, doesn't really work out of the bullpen. Um, and, you know, Waka scares the hell out of me right now. Um, so I, I hope that things go okay with that. I am a little surprised that you think they're going to make a trade addition, though, because one of the things that's been different about this Red Sox team than past Red Sox teams and one of the things we've seen over the past few games is the much, much, much improved depth uh, to the the starting pitching. And we talked about the performance that Cutter Crawford had. Uh, Connor Siebold looked way better in his last start. He went uh, four innings pitched, uh, only allowed one run run, struck out four against the Cubs. Um you know, he, he pitched a good game uh, for Connor Siebold. So why do you think they're going to go after another guy there? Do you think that ultimately they just don't trust those guys to, to carry as much of the load as they might have to during this stretch? Because you can never have too much pitching, and I think you can go out and get a better arm from someone else. You know, that's not a bad idea. Uh, at all. And I think that there's a pretty solid argument to be had that Siebold and Crawford and some of these other guys, if you sell them now to go make a move for a more established major league pitcher, um, you know, let's just say they go after a Frankie Montas. Like, that guy's going to be a lot more impactful to, to your team this year and a year that you're trying to contend um, than those guys will. And you can argue that you're selling high on a guy like Siebold or or Crawford or one of these guys that's sort of a fringy fifth starter cuz ultimately right you're the Red Sox controllable fifth starters are not as important to you as they are to the Oakland Athletics correct so it's a sound or at least they should be you <laughs> right yeah in theory uh they should definitely not be so yeah i do really like that idea i hope that bloom uh, is aggressive in consolidating some of the depth depth that he's accrued to go uh, address some of those things. Okay, um, talking about things that Heim Bloom should address, though bullpen woes uh, continue. We talked about Strom's blown save on Sunday when they were playing still the Cubs and not the Rays. Um, whoopsie. Um, and uh, Schreiber and Hauk have been pretty good, um, but. Outside of that, it's been pretty awful. We were texting back and forth with each other that Robles ought to not be on this team anymore, joining the list of Ryan Brazier and others. Um, but one positive development might be that Josh Taylor is uh, continuing to rehab down at AAA Worcester and could be ready to go soon. But what do you think ends up happening once he is ready to go? Because that's one of the things that's kind of weird about this um, bullpen right now is for lefties, they have Strom, Diekman, Austin Davis, and when Taylor comes back, Taylor's going to bump somebody, and you really can't carry four lefties in your pen. Or can you? Yeah. I mean, 
Why can't you? It's just weird. It is weird. <laughs> but I think, you know, I mentioned this before. I'm much less worried about the handedness of the guys in the bullpen and much more concerned with their ability. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm not going to, like, I mean, Strom's kind of been up and down. Deekman has been up and down. Um, Davis has been pretty all right. So those guys are all probably going to stay. Um, Brazier, Robles, I know you want to boot Sourmore. I'm kind of fond to keep him around. Um, there are guys that I think I would much rather bounce because they're bad uh, than keep just because they're right-handed. Like, what's the point of keeping a Brazier or a Robles around, even though they stink, just because they're right-handed? Yeah. Yeah, nah, it's, it's a pretty good argument. I just wonder if a trade is coming. You know, teams are always looking for quality lefties, and the Red Sox, I mean, you can make a good argument that four of their best relievers are lefties once Taylor's back. So, you know, they might end up having to make a move here. I will note, it's been kind of weird what they've been doing with um, with Josh Taylor in the minor leagues. I don't know if you noticed this, but he's actually been starting games. Uh, he's been starting basically every other game and going out and just throwing an inning. Um, but that's how they've been sort of working him back. So he hasn't actually been coming in, um, you know, late. Um so it's been a little bit of a different usage pattern. He's definitely not been dominant. He's pitched uh, six innings and allowed ten hits uh, so far and uh, three earned runs. So, I guess it's a way to guarantee coming in the clean inning versus a team's best hitters. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, and I think it's smart because clearly this back injury was pretty serious, but... I kind of would have liked to see him doing a little bit better against this competition. And it's always difficult to judge like from minor league rehab stats, because I don't know if he's just going out there and throwing his fastball, you know, um, cause I'm not seeing it and I'm not seeing pitch counts or whatever. Um, but I don't know what he's working on, but it, I guess you, you, you'd kind of like him to have better numbers. I agree. Okay. So we won't tell Bloom to go get more uh, bullpen arms because we do that every week. Um, next, Jaron Duran uh, finally finished his research and got vaccinated or is getting vaccinated. How do you feel about that? Yeah. I mean, uh, he got vaccinated and then hit a home run on the next pitch he saw. So that should be all the evidence everybody needs to go get vaccinated. <laughs> all right good enough for me um next thing here um jd martinez so he's a very important part of the red sox offense and has just simply not been uh right for the past month and change so i decided today to do a little bit of research before we got on this show uh as to what has gone on with him uh over the last 28 games and over his first 41 games. So here are some numbers to just kind of think on. So his first 41 games this year, which is through uh, May 31st, J.D. Martinez 
363 with a 425 on base percentage, a 563 slugging percentage, a whopping 17 doubles, five home runs for a 179 WRC plus. That's awesome. One of the best players in all of the American League, all of the league actually. Over his next 28 games, which is since the start of June, he has hit 225, 304, 369 for an 88 WRC plus with just seven doubles and three home runs. Not good. So once I say those numbers without doing any research, Keaton, what would you think the problem is for him? Um, Mercury is in retrograde. <laughs> well, uh, to to the non-astronomers here, uh, what what do you think the problem could be? I don't know. That's weird. Is he hurt? Seems like a hurt thing. It's pretty drastic. Maybe. What if I made you even more confused by telling you, over his first 41 games, he had a 14.3 swinging strike rate. And over his last 28 games, in which he's been horrible, he's had a 12.9% swinging strike rate. So he's actually swinging through fewer pitches when he's been doing poorly. That's weird, yep. right? That's weird. Sounds like a Mercury and retrograde thing. That's, <laughs> I think that is strengthening my case. Okay, we're going to get even weirder here. Over his first 41 games, his contact percentage was 72.5%. Over his last 28 horrible games, his contact rate has gone up to 75.6%. Am I starting to freak you out? So is he just not swinging? Is that the thing? No, he's swinging. Here's where it starts to get some explanations. So, um, and sorry for the nitty gritty numbers here, people, but I really <laughs> wanted to know what was happening here. Um, he's swinging at balls over the first 41 games. He was swinging at balls uh, outside of the zone just 34.1% of the time. Uh, that has gone up to 38.2% of the time. So he's, he's swinging at balls outside of the zone more over his last 28 games. But the biggest thing that's happened, and I think the thing that you could point to, Keaton, that might indicate that he's not feeling 100% physically, is his hard hit rate. Uh, it, it was 45.8%, which is really high, over his first 41 games. Over his last 28 games, it's 38.1%. And he's only had six barrels over the last 28 games versus 18 barreled balls over the first 41. So he's just simply not hitting the ball hard anymore. It's not that he's having trouble making contact or even swinging through more pitches. Um, he's just not hitting the ball hard. He's not barreling the ball anymore. So that tells me something physical is probably going on with him. We know that he's had the back issues and he did have a little bit of a minor flare up, which caused him to miss uh, a few plate appearances here in the last month or so. Um, but it's something to keep an eye on because, you know, he's only got a half year left of control. And if JD Martinez is not good, this offense is going to suffer. Yeah, I saw um, 
I can't remember now if it was on the broadcast a couple of days ago or if it was on Twitter. So it was on Twitter and someone posted it. Sorry, I can't give you credit, but I just forgot. Uh, but since his last homer, he's hitting under 200. Um, so I wonder if you shrunk that window on the heart. Because like a 38% hard hit rate, while that is a drop from what he was doing before, is still 3% over the major league average. Right. And it's still really hard. So I wonder if you shrunk down that window just to the to the time where he hit his last home run. We might be able to zero in and pinpoint something that happened and, and things might get even a little bit more drastic in those numbers. Might have to do a little bit deeper of a dive there. Well, I think I could do that. Last home run was uh, the 14th, okay? And... Yeah, like three weeks. That's a... Yep. So, hard hit rate in that time, not actually drastically different. 37.3%. Wow, interesting. Yep. Yeah. Interesting. So, yeah, Mercury's in retrograde, man. It's just, you know, it comes for us all. That's it. All right. Well, we've solved uh, the J.D. Martinez conundrum, and now it's on to listener questions. A great big lark has our first couple of questions here. He says, uh, the Xander All-Star voting has me wondering, should fans have this much power to determine All-Star starters? I know it's all subjective, but considering Xander's numbers versus any other AL shortstop, it feels like any system that doesn't have him starting as the AL shortstop is flawed. This has been a huge talking point on the radio. Sports radio around Boston recently is is been about... Uh, the fact that Red Sox fans just like don't give a crap to go out and vote for our guys anymore because we used to be famous for sort of stuffing the ballot box for our dudes and even dudes who didn't deserve to start at the start. So what's your take on this, Keaton? Because it is kind of troubling to me that Xander being clearly the best shortstop in the American League uh, is probably not going to start this game. Yeah, it's pretty stupid. Uh, and <laughs> the answer... Uh, to every question that is up for um, you know, leaving like f- like fan votes or just like letting the public freely decide anything uh, is incredibly stupid because there are a lot of stupid people out there. Yeah, it's the problem of too much democracy. Uh, and <laughs> yeah. the, the founding fathers were very afraid of too much democracy. Uh, they got a lot of things wrong, but uh, that was... Um, you know, one of the things that they were very much afraid of. Yeah. Um, and I don't know I actually, if what they put in place was right, but they were at least on the right track. <laughs> yeah. So I have this friend uh, who I work with who actually worked in high school at one of the um, ballot counting uh, centers for uh, tallying the all-star votes. And uh, shenanigans happen uh, with these votes. So... Uh, and I don't think I'm breaking any stories here, but finally I get to share this with the world. Um, <laughs> so for small market teams like the Royals and the Pirates and stuff like that, um, they would send in just these perfectly packed, um, clearly like all cut by a machine ballots that were like packed in plastic and clearly like someone at the Pirates just took an entire stack of these things and just like punched in a player um, and, and sent them 
uh, to these ballot counting places. And for the big market teams like the Red Sox and the Yankees and the Cardinals and, you know, these other teams that have great fan bases, uh, my friend said they were all over the place. They were covered in beer and ketchup and like whatever else. And they were clearly done by people at the games. Um, (laughs) And no one batted an eye at the fact that like, I guess, you know, ballot stuffing and, you know, making making it happen. was just a thing. And and if you remember a couple of years ago, uh, the Kansas City Royals, when they were good, they had like everyone starting. Yeah. They had like, yeah. It was like, wasn't it like eight and Mike Trout? Yeah. It was so <laughs> ridiculous. Um, so, no, the people should not have this much control. I think it's the no. dumbest thing in the world. Um, That's how you end up with the, what was it, the English research boat, Bodie McBoatface? <laughs> yeah, that's right <laughs> and then it was like mountain dew did like an open uh public poll for what their new flavor should be named and the leading vote getter was hitler did nothing wrong and they had to immediately cancel it oh god and like that's yeah that's what happens and that that's what happens when you open it up like that just yeah people are nonsense. terrible yeah. zero days since our last nonsense <laughs> Not good. Not good. Don't give the people too much power. Um, all right. Next one here from a great big lark says, if Bayo shoves in his first start, what do you think about keeping him in the rotation to see what he can do? Uh, optioning or DFAing the underperforming uh, bullpen arms, keeping Wankowski, Crawford, and Seabold in the bullpen as multi-inning relief options. So we already talked about Bayo staying up, but um, you already know my feelings about Winkowski. Uh, being in the pen. I think that's a wonderful idea. But yeah. Crawford and Siebold, we saw Crawford in the pen. He sucked. But Crawford <laughs> just went out um, and threw five and a third grade innings. Um, so something's different with him. Um, Siebold, though, I don't think his stuff would play in the bullpen. What What's your take on those two guys? Um, Crawford and Siebold staying in the bullpen as long relief guys. Yeah, um... It's interesting because I don't know. Crawford seems like the classic fifth starter inconsistent guy. Like, I don't know if his stuff really makes sense in the bullpen either. But someone's got to be the new Brian Johnson and be here for 10 years. Um, so maybe that's Seabold and then you end up packaging um, Crawford in a deal for somebody else like you were you were pointing out earlier, like move one of those guys, sell high. Yeah. Kind of thing. Yeah. I, I think Winkowski stuff is clearly the only guy here that I, I think we can say would play up in the bullpen. I do think Crawford or Siebold might be more valuable as a trade chip. And I think the thing that hurts Crawford's case here too, is the fact that Crawford, as far as we know, is still not vaccinated. Um, and I think oh, that's yeah, a pretty that. big <laughs> consideration. Uh, for Heim Bloom and Alex Cora when constructing uh, whatever they want their pen to be long term. Yeah. So, hurts his case quite a bit. But yeah, Agreed. Bayo definitely should start for a while. More Bayo. Uh, the next one comes from, I don't know, Get Gethin Coolbaugh? Uh, he says, uh, first time, long time. 
Do you guys have any idea what Aspiration does? Meaning the company that's got their logo uh, all over uh, the ballpark. Because none of us do. Keaton, any, uh, any insight? I thought that was when you like... You're like eating or drinking, and you goes down the wrong pipe, and you like kind of choke a bit. I thought that that was aspiration. I think aspiration is just to breathe. Oh, just it's just breathing. Breathing, yeah. So I think that this company is some sort of uh, environmental company that plants trees or something. I don't know. I haven't actually looked into it because I didn't care, but. I do think it has something to do with breathing. Credit what card trees? service company. <laughs> it's what? Credit card service company. How on earth does that have anything to do with trees? Isn't their logo a tree? Uh, this is just an A. Oh. Wow. I mean, the logo that's on the field is just the word aspiration, so... Wow. Well, that's really something. So let me look up a little definition here. On see, is it something about choking? <laughs> or is it the same as choking is the question. And the answer is when food or drink or foreign objects are breathed into the lungs. Yeah, and then it goes down the wrong tube. Might happen during choking. See, I was right. Wait, so the credit card company is named after choking? I mean, I don't know if they're named after choking, but that's aspiration is, and it's it's technically not choking, but it's when stuff goes down the wrong pipe. I mean, you've, I'm sure you've done this before. Like, yeah, of course. You're drinking water, it goes down the wrong pipe, and you kind of cough a little I bit. I did and it you're two like, days oh, ago. Right. It sucked. Yeah, there, that was aspiration. There you go. Wow. All right. Well, you aspirated. All right. Now we're moving on to Gordon Comstock's question, uh, which is. Definitely Are you sure you want to baseball. do like another ten minutes on this? I'm totally good with uh, aspiration. <laughs> I think I might aspirate if I continue. Uh, Gordon Comstock has a good question for us, though. He says, uh, "One is 2007 Ellsbury. One is Duran from a day ago this year." albeit about 50 less plate appearances, without looking it up which is which. And he gives us two lines, 333, 386, 530, 919 OPS, 153 WRC+, 18.1% K rate, 6.1% walk rate, and a 404 BABIP. That's the first line. The second one is 353, 394 OBP, 509 slugging, 902 OPS, 131 WRC+, 11.8% 11.8% K rate and thir- uh, 6.3% walk rate with a 380 BABIP. So, Keaton, I'm going to give my guess first because this was my guess. And Keaton can uh, can confirm. I guessed that the 333 one was Ellsbury. But Keaton knew the answer because Keaton just traded Duran in his own league. Uh, in one of his his fantasy leagues. So, Keaton, tell us what the right answer is. Yeah, I was acutely aware of what Duran's line was because I literally hours before this had just been looking at his 
slash line. <laughs> so, um, so I I guess technically it cheated here because I, I knew exactly where it was. But you no, know, 333 was Duran. 353 was Ellsbury in 2007. Also notable, um, Jaron Duran, five steals so far. Ellsbury that season, six. Wow. And uh, both really, really freaking fast. So does this mean, Keaton, that Jaron Duran is going to outperform Jacoby Ellsbury's 2011 season at some point, his 9.5 war season? I would love it if he did. It's not going to happen. I mean, that it, it's a tremendous... There's very few people who do. <laughs> Nine and a half <laughs> war is one That's of the so, highest so much war. war seasons. I don't think Betts ever has ever had. had a season that high. He's come close. Uh, let's see. Betts. Mookie Betts. Best season. Oh, yeah. 10.6. All right, I lied. Betts has had a season that high. Better. Better than that. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, best, better, bets. There you go. Yep. Nailed it. Boom. All right. Moving on to our next question. Mike Toomey, uh, he says, what glove is Arroyo using right now? Also, can I have it? Um, you'll have to ask Arroyo, but Keaton and I were trying to figure this out. Uh, and all that Keaton could tell me about it was that it was brown. You yep, got anything more got. since since then? Nope. Uh, that's that's all I could tell. There was a ground ball to Bogarts, and um, that was as close of a view as I could see. Um, so I, I may be wrong. It may not be brown, but it looked brown from the view behind home plate. <laughs> when you were playing, what what was your uh, glove of choice? Oh man. Um I don't remember the the brand or the model, but it was brown and black and I was a big fan of the webbed pocket and I was a I was an idiot. I played second base and I went with an 11 and a half inch, Ooh. which is real dumb. Yeah, that's like an outfield size, isn't it? Yes it is. So it's got real deep pocket. I was real slow on the turn. Um, really should be rocking a nine and a half on the infield. Yeah. Um, yeah that's a big, boy. that extra that's two like inches wasn't fielder. great. Yeah. I'm not sure why I did that. Um, but the glove was just really comfortable. Uh, and I had it for many years and loved it, but yeah, probably could have turned those, uh, those double plays a little quicker. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. All right, Mike. Sorry, we couldn't give you more info there, but maybe uh, JustGloves.com has some. We weaved webbing. There we go. Big fan of the weave. Uh, last question here comes from You Know the Vibes. Why on earth does stupid-ass Bloom still have a job? Uh, I said I would address this one. Uh, Bloom, not as stupid-ass. As much as I've criticized him here, Bloom has done some uh, quite good things as well as doing some quite bad things. All of that nice starting pitching depth that I've been talking about and that Keaton's been talking about and that lovely uh, Brian Bayo fellow, uh, their development, a lot of that has taken place under Bloom. Even though that you know Bloom's not responsible for signing Bayo and a lot of these other prospects we've been talking about, 
you know, he's he's definitely changed the the Red Sox uh, pitching development philosophy. And I think we've been really critical of Heim Bloom for uh, the careless approach that he took to building this bullpen uh, this year. And clearly, I mean, the Red Sox are one of the top teams in all of baseball in terms of meltdowns. They've lost like they have more blown saves than they have saves. They'd probably have 10 more wins if he built uh, a decent bullpen because it's been a bad bullpen, in my opinion. Um so yeah, I think there's a lot to criticize him for, but there's a lot that he's done quite well, especially with the minor league system and adding depth. But the fact that uh, Rafael Devers and Xander Bogart still don't have a new contract is pretty pretty bad. So uh, that will form my opinion about Heimblum. What say you? They're second place in the division, the first in the wild card. Like, what the hell is going on here? Is that not a successful team right Sounds now like a pretty successful team to me yeah it's successful but you know i th- i think you could argue that we would be right behind the yankees with a comparable bullpen sure yeah i mean games back that doesn't mean that the team is perfect like you said there are absolutely things to criticize them for but uh i blue i'm not a stupid ass and certainly deserves to have the job that he has Agreed. Unless he lets Bogart's endeavors go. Correct. And then he doesn't deserve his job. Correct. So until then, we're Team Bloom. Correct. Albeit two rational, critical people. Well, we had had two metrics. We had this past offseason. We're like, dude's got to spend money. He did. We would have liked to have seen one of those, something else in the bullpen. But... uh, you know, we'll see if maybe something happens to the trade deadline. But then also Bogart's endeavors, extensions to the core of the roster. Yep. So we're one for one, TBD on part two. Yep. He'll make up for a lot if he can uh, fix those things. So we shall see. Well, thank you all for joining us for today's episode of the show. We do hope you enjoyed it, um, even if I uh, – messed up on what games happen when um but uh if you did enjoy it tell your family your friends your enemies uh to subscribe to this podcast if you didn't enjoy it tell just your enemies and uh follow keaton on twitter at the spoken keats follow me at at dev jake follow the over the monster account at over the monster and subscribe so thanks a lot we'll be with you next week 